I would ask you to open your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Hebrews and the 12th chapter, Hebrews and chapter 12, as we continue working our way through this uh, epistle in our most recent studies. Uh, we've been looking at verses 18 through 24 of uh, Hebrews 12, noting in verses 18 through 21, sobering, even terrifying displays of God's glory there at Mount Sinai at the giving of his law. You recall that we saw, as Albert Barnes has put it, every circumstance that occurred was suited to fill the soul with terror. You've got uh, the uh, mountain burning with fire. You've got blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet. And it's getting, as we see in Exodus, getting louder and louder and louder. And then you've got the voice of words, God himself speaking in such a way that they were then begging that, no, they don't want to hear that voice again, that they wanted Moses to be the mediator for them. Well, all of that was emblematic of the Old Covenant and that whole Old Covenant period that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 3.9 as a ministry of condemnation. The law is good, but it shows that we're in sin, and therefore the law can give no help to obey it. It only can condemn, as Paul says, a law of the ministry rather of condemnation. Well, you notice he says in the beginning of verse 18, for you have not come to that. Okay? That's not us. That's Old Covenant, and that was that whole uh, ethos of that period. But we have come, rather, he says, to these glorious realities of the New Covenant. And you remember how it especially speaks of coming to God himself, when it speaks of the heavenly Jerusalem and the like. Not to some earthly city, but rather we've come to God in his manifest presence as fully accepted and having blessed access to him. We are as, as accepted, have the access even as that uh, innumerable angels to which he here referred, oh, that great company of just men made perfect, that we are not now before God in terror, even though he's here called the judge of all. Yet we're before him as that general assembly. You remember that means that great festival gathering. This glorious rejoicing time. All festal gathering before him. Because being justified by faith we have peace with God. And therefore we've come now to all of these blessings. Even now joined to those spirits of just men made perfect. Those who saints who have gone on are now with the Lord who are just. Well we are just that accepted and we are united to them now. And looking ahead to that great day when all will be united together in that new heavens and new earth. And all of this entirely because of him of whom we read in verse 24. Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. All these privileges, all these joys that are ours, it's all because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, we've seen what a contrast this is. The old covenant and its realities, but then the new covenant and its realities and blessings both now and forever, or to put it another way, it's the difference between standing before God on the basis of law or on the basis of the gospel. Or to put it yet another way, uh, the contrast of standing before God in our sin, our failure to keep God's law, versus standing before God in Christ's perfect obedience, that righteousness that's been credited to us. We all fell 
in Adam, condemned in his sin. Well, and each one uh, naturally born of Adam says his own amen by his particular sins. And yet by that one offering, we have been perfected forever. The one who knew no sin was regarded and treated as sin itself, that we should be the very righteousness of God in him. That's the blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Remember, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Christ's blood says no vengeance is had. Punishment's been paid. Justice is satisfied. These, his redeemed people, are perfectly righteous forever before a holy God, perfected forever by that one offering. Well, the emphasis, as you can see, as we've seen week by week in looking at these verses, is on contrast. But we mustn't overlook the fact that there's also emphasis on similarities between Old Covenant and New Covenant. That's even seen here in these words. For instance, the most obvious, it's the same God who established both of these covenants, Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's not like, well, you know, that was one God in Exodus 20, but it's a different God now. Nor is it even, that's how he was in Exodus 20, but he is a different God now. Absolutely not. It's the same God who does not change. In fact, that's been emphasized early on in Hebrews in chapter 1 about a God who forever is, who does not change. Well, that's him. And, and underscoring that is this. When Moses was rehearsing these things in Deuteronomy about the giving of the law and so forth, he's telling them to be very careful to keep that covenant. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, 23, 24. Don't forget this covenant. For the Lord our God is a consuming fire. Well, notice how ver uh, chapter 12 ends of here in Hebrews. For our God is a consuming fire. Same God. And it's not like, well, he somehow changed. He's not, no. No, he's the God who does not change, nor does his purpose change. Another similarity between both Old Covenant and New is this. Both of these covenants had glory. It's not emphasized necessarily clearly here in uh, Hebrews 12, but we know from 2 Corinthians 3, the ministry of death that was written and engraved on stones, it was glorious. Or in verse 9 of that chapter, it had glory. And of course, that's what we see with, uh, at Mount Sinai. Uh, the, uh, all that was going on visibly and audibly, it was God giving at least some manifestation of his glory. Not just his justice, but certainly his justice as well. His perfections shining forth. Oh, but as Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 3, 9, uh, the ministry of righteousness, that is the new covenant, it exceeds much more in glory. So the old covenant, we must never think, oh, that was bad and now this one's good. No, Paul keeps, or the writer of Hebrews keeps using the word better. It had glory. It was God's covenant and it had glory. Oh, but wait, the new so much more exceeds. Uh, one more similarity. In both cases, it's the same God speaking. The same God communicating his truth to mankind. We saw that in verse 18. You got the voice, or 19 rather, the voice of words. That is, God spoke audibly there at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. And they didn't want to hear it. They knew this was not just some guy. This is God speaking. And they were so terrified they didn't want to hear that again. Well, it's that same God who has now spoken 
in his son. Remember the writer of Hebrews begins on that note. Uh, times passed various ways, various times. God spoke uh, to our fathers by the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. And he goes on to sort of give description of who Christ is. Then he comes to the uh, next chapter, chapter 2, and verses 3 and 4. And he says, and also God uh, has, continues to speak uh, by those who heard him. And God bore witness to them in the giving of the spirit, gifts of the Spirit at his will. So here, it's the same God speaking, mind you, even the same truth. That which was shadowed in the old, greater light in the new, the same saving purpose. And that's why we have this application in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape, who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Now those words, him who spoke on earth... That does not mean Moses. Okay? There have been some commentators who say, well, it's Moses versus Jesus speaking. No, that's not the point. It goes on to say in verse 26, it's the God whose voice then shook the earth. That wasn't Moses. Okay? We're told very clearly in Exodus 19 that the whole mountain quaked greatly at the sound of God's voice. So the one who spoke on earth here, not Moses, is God. And the contrast is not who is speaking, Moses versus Christ. The contrast is where they're speaking, on the earth. Well, it doesn't mean that uh, God was somehow standing on the earth. But it was that voice heard on the earth of God condescending and so speaking as it were uh, where people were. The voice of words, here in, in Hebrews 12, Exodus 20, it was heard on the earth. All that was going on audibly, all that was going on visibly before them at, at Sinai. All this was apparatus or phenomena taking place right there on earth. That was God communicating to men again on earth. So the children of Israel then, they didn't simply refuse Moses, but rather the God who spoke on the earth in their hearing. You'll know how their unbelief then produced rebellion. How their unbelief and rebellion ultimately led to turning away from the true and living God to their idols. And then afterward they suffered the consequences of it. Hebrews 2.3 has already talked about they received their just reward even for every transgression. Or chapter 10 in Hebrews, uh, they suffered the consequences without mercy. Well, here in 12.25... The writer reasons from that past judgment, as you can see in the reading of it. And that's what we're going to focus on, is the lessons that come from that past judgment. And now, in light of where we are, we're going to look at it under three heads, three observations from our text. The first is this. It's the God, it's, it is that God who then spoke. It's that God who, in these last days, has spoken to us by his Son, who still speaks. Notice again the language. Uh, do not refuse him who speaks. Present tense. It's not talking about something in the past here. In some way, this God is still speaking. Now, not on earth, 
right? That's clear from the text. Uh, from heaven, not some audible voice like they heard in Exodus 20. Not now by direct revelation, as was the case in the Old Testament uh, through the prophets at various times. But God does now communicate to mankind. Well, that begs the question, how? What, what is the writer talking about? What does he have in mind? Well, let me say, it's not simply creation. We uh, read a hymn that uh, was loosely based on uh, Psalm 19 uh, earlier about the heavens declaring the glory of God. Well, it, it's not that uh, simply creation by which God speaks, though that is true, or even by providence, but rather it's firstly, as the writer has already said, going to Scripture. What you have in Scripture is God speaking. Back up to verse 5 of Hebrews 12. Paul's writing to these Christians and their discouragements, and he says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And he says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. He quotes God's word. But what he's saying is, this is scripture, and it speaks. Not simply spoke, past tense. It's God who speaks to you. It underscores the Bible's no dead book. Ah, you know that old ancient and outdated thing? No, it's not. It's very living. It's God's word, and he speaks by it. And again, it underscores there's no mere book at all. It's that to which the writer of Hebrews has already referred back in chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God was as living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's this uh, great book, this word, by which God speaks as he uses his word applied by the Holy Spirit. But more particularly, the writer of Hebrews has in mind new covenant revelation. That is to say, uh, the contrast with that old covenant revelation going back to chapter 1. In times past, God spoke various ways, various times by the prophets through the fathers. Now he's spoken in his son. And it's not like, well, okay, that was back then. He spoke in his son and no more. No, it's that through which God still speaks. It's the new covenant redemptive revelation uh, that is here being underscored. The fullness of that redemptive revelation in Christ. It's made known after his ascension. And furthermore, it was made known especially as Hebrews chapter 2. Well, let's come there, please, quickly. We'll come back to that passage, but verse 3. Of Hebrews 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Well, here's the point. It's this that was revealed in Christ. Call it new covenant revelation or new covenant redemptive revelation. That's what the writer is referring to. And it's not that, well, God spoke and it's done now and he's just sitting back and, no. God still uses that which was given through Christ. God still speaks. Paul writes to Titus and he says it's God who's commanded the preaching of his word. That which he promised long ago, well, he's now fulfilling it and he's commanded the preaching of the word. Or as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, a man in his folly did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of of the message preached is a better trend. The old King James foolishness of preaching, but it's really the emphasis isn't on the act of preaching, it's on the message preached. But it is that message proclaimed. 
and to please God through the message proclaimed to save those who believe. Or uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10, 17. What's that very connection? How shall they hear without a preacher? Uh, That is to say, it's that glorious message that is there proclaimed. It's God still speaking from heaven, as it were, in this glorious gospel as Christ is preached. It's God using his word, as it were, God speaking. That's why we're told, uh, why Titus, uh, Timothy, sorry, was told, preach the word. Whether they want to hear it or not, doesn't matter. Uh, this is what God uses. Uh, Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, you were born again by this incorruptible seed, the word of God that was preached to you by those who preached the gospel. They came declaring this truth. It's that that was used. Or notice if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul's referring especially to himself and Timothy, but not just them. It speaks of all those who are proclaiming God's word, certainly in an official capacity like uh, preachers. Notice verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So in the preaching of the word it's not simply men speaking to men, but rather it's God himself using that. God uh, speaks in Christ in the proclamation of that new covenant a redemptive revelation or if you please in the gospel and he makes it effectual. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians <clears throat> Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you. Okay, the word did come in power. It was Paul and Silas and Timothy who came there preaching the gospel. But he says it wasn't only power. It was God himself, by the Holy Spirit, who did this mighty work. So that it came Not in word only, but in power to your conversion. And so he says, chapter 2 and verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. It's in this way that God still speaks. As his word is proclaimed, a new covenant revelation and the gospel in particular. This is really what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 5. Please come there. In John chapter 5. Verse 24 and 25. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who are who hear will live. Now in this chapter he goes on to make reference to that last day all who are in the graves hearing his voice and coming forth at his command then. But that's not this. This hour now is. That is to say right now it's the case of the gospel going forth and as Christ speaking as it were 
and sinners hearing his voice and being made alive as the gospel comes with power as we saw there in 1 Thessalonians or you've got Jesus himself saying in John chapter 10 my sheep hear my voice and they follow me well how did you hear his voice you're one of his sheep Christian how did you hear his voice I mean, you just sort of one day walking along, you hear this audible voice of Jesus. Is that what? No, that's not what happened at all. You heard the gospel preached. And Christ saying, they hear my voice, made effectual by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he still speaks. As Paul writing to the Ephesians says in Ephesians and chapter 4, and when he's talking about what had happened to them in verse 21, you have heard him. You've heard Christ. You've heard him. And have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. What do you mean? I mean, Jesus has ascended on high. When uh, the gospel came to Ephesus, they didn't actually hear audibly Jesus speaking. The, how do they hear him? How were they taught by him? Well, Paul's there making reference to when he came proclaiming the gospel there in that place. It was Christ speaking. Well, I would say to you, that's what is in mind here when we're told that uh, uh, him who speaks, that is the very God who uh, has now given redemptive revelation in Christ, well, he still is declaring that truth in and through Christ and those who heard him and not just the apostles, but when his word is proclaimed. And further verifying this, uh, that this is what the writer had in mind, it's this new covenant revelation, the gospel, that these uh, original recipients of the letter were tempted to turn from, right? They'd been hearing, they'd heard the gospel, they'd professed faith in Christ uh, by the gospel, but now they're ready to go back to Judaism, it seems. They're waffling. Well, the writer is again warning against that. It's him who speaks. Here's new covenant revelation, and you're now going to leave that and go back uh, to Judaism? think of what he did that so great salvation uh, the glory of this gospel God's grace held forth to sinners all that Christ accomplished putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself by that one offering perfecting us forever in our acceptance with God and all that he is for sinners like us that great mediator and high priest who appears in the presence of God for us whoever lives to make intercession for us saving us to the utmost this great and faithful and merciful high priest who gives aid to his tempted people securing all of those blessings of the new covenant as the mediator of the new covenant all of that to which we have now come here in chapter 20 uh, chapter 12 verses 22 through 24 all the blessings church of the firstborn and the like in toying with returning to, Ju to judaism they were toying with turning away from all that which God speaks in his son, in the gospel of his son. That which Christ secured, that which he graciously holds forth to sinners in the proclamation of the gospel. And so rightly then does the writer of Hebrews apply it in this way. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. It's this word from heaven. Take care that you do not in any way, for any reason, refuse that. And especially so in light of another matter that we must note, a second observation from the text, is not just turning away from the gospel, it's also to refuse him who speaks. Come again to Hebrews 12.25. 
see that you do not refuse him. Not simply see that you do not refuse his word, now that's included, but it's him. This very God who was revealed at Sinai, he just made reference to that. That audible voice, that burning mountain uh, that's quaking, uh, the blackness, the darkness at the same time, this great fire ablaze, whose glory was revealed at Sinai. See that you do not refuse him. This is serious. But that's not all that the writer is saying. More, remember, he's just saying, you've not come to that. You've come to this God uh, who's made a way of approach to him in Jesus Christ. This God who in the gospel holds out such glorious realities of knowing him and being in his presence forever. Uh, even the church of the firstborn, that is to say that all are regarded as in the same family, sharing that same blessed inheritance and all these privileges. Yes, you come to him as the judge of all, he says here in verse 23. Oh, but see what grace to sinners. All of these privileges, all this acceptance and access to his accepted and in his presence even uh, as and with the angels forever blessed uh, with his people all because of this one and only mediator, Jesus Christ, whose blood speaks better things. It's this God who speaks do not turn away. Do not refuse him. Because to refuse this gospel, to refuse him who speaks, is actually to refuse a relationship with this God. Right? Isn't that what he's here saying? A relationship with the true and living God, even knowing him as our father in heaven, to reject that? That's what he, Be careful not to refuse him who speaks. Now, in addition to that being entirely nonsensical and incredibly stupid, is that not gross wickedness? For a guilty, hell-deserving, hell-bound sinner to reject such a gracious offer to know this holy and infinitely glorious God forever and ever and ever even in his presence. To have all sins forgiven. To have Christ's perfect righteousness so credited to us that it cannot be improved upon. We're perfected forever by that one offering. No way can anyone be more accepted than we are in Christ. To reject him and to reject that new birth. A new heart to know him and to love him. To reject that adoption into his blessed family, being loved with that great love, even as a joint heir with Jesus Christ, sharing his status, his inheritance forever, with a body even suited to enjoy that inheritance like unto his glorious body. And right now, behold, what manner of love that God should deem us as his own precious children. Remember how Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, he's praying that the world will know that the Father has loved us as the Father loves him. What immeasurable love. This great God should make a way for this and even to give the Holy Spirit uh, to make that relationship very real, that spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, that is that our filial relationship with this God is real and felt and that we should know indeed that we are the children of God. To refuse this is to refuse him. Right? 
No, I don't want that. I don't want that relationship with him. That's to refuse or to reject God himself. And for what? And for what? For sin and self-will? Isn't this what Jesus is talking about in John 3? They hate the light because they love the darkness and they won't come to the light. They love their sin. They're lovers of pleasure instead of being lovers of God. Does that make sense to you? Does that make the least bit of sense to you? Does it make sense to you? Does it? I mean, how foolish. I don't want all this blessedness knowing this God. I want my sin for a few years here until I die and go to hell. But isn't that exactly what the unsaved do? Job 21, 14, depart from us. We don't desire a knowledge of your ways or uh, all like sheep have gone astray. They've turned to their own way, not all to the same way, but all to their own way. I don't want God's way. I want to do things my way. Isn't that the unsaved generally? And it's all because of Romans 8, 7, karma is hostile against God. It's not subject to the law of God. can't be, but they're hostile. Don't tell me what to do. It's not the unsaved in their position, their posture before God. How wicked. How sin is so loved by them. Sin, that which damns is so loved by them. And how God is so hated. How deceived. How held by sin and by Satan himself. Oh, but what a gracious God. And what a gracious command when he commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a gracious command. You know, commands to repent. Oh, that's awful. No, my friend. It's this gracious God who's commanding, lay down the weapons of your warfare. Stop your warring and turn from your foolishness and that which ruins life here and damns your soul forever. And be adopted and loved forever as God's dear child. What a gracious command. And this God has made the way for sinners like us to be adopted. That he sent his only begotten son. Suffering and dying in the place of sinners. Paying the debt for sins. Receiving the penalty for sin. And thereby securing a perfect righteousness for all who look to Christ and Christ alone. Made right with God through him. Even adopted as his own dear children. How foolish to refuse him who speaks. How right to repent and believe this good news. Are you without Christ? Are you unsaved? See the grace of God that is held out to you. What grace? All of God's provision in Jesus Christ. This God who so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, not perish, have everlasting life. Well, Paul in that text, that chapter, right after that chapter, rather, I should say, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, having said, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading with you through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He then says, now don't receive the grace of God in vain. That is to say, even to hear that message is grace, it's undeserved. Don't receive it in vain. Today is the day of salvation. Go to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. And as the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How? How will you escape? But please remember these words 
that we're looking at in Hebrews 12 were not originally pinned to the overtly rebellious and irreligious. These words were originally addressed to religious people, even a people who had professed faith in Christ. But as we've seen over the course of our studies, here they are, they're waffling. They're tempted to go back to Judaism. Maybe it's because they uh, were being pressured by family and friends. Yeah, you don't have a temple. You don't have a priest. You don't have sacrifice. You don't. Well, the writer said, yes, we've got all those. We've got the better. We've got the far better. But nonetheless, they're waffling. And this is yet another warning against apostasy. That is that total casting off the faith. We, did, we saw this back in Hebrews 6 about those who just totally reject Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 10, they trample him underfoot, as it were. Uh, and therefore, he says, this refusing him is described as a turning away from him. Not simply neglecting, but turning away. A real turning. It's the word that's used in Acts 3 about Christ coming to turn sinners from their sin. That's a real turning, isn't it? Right? Turning sinners from their sin to God. Okay, well that's the word. A, turn, a real turning away. It's the same word that's used elsewhere. Second uh, Timothy 4 about people turning away from the truth uh, for error because they want something that would tickle their ears a bit. But it's not just turning away from the word. It's turning from him, the writer of Hebrews says. Turning from God. I'm done. I'm going this way. Now, it's clear that these people who are addressed had not done so. Right? Again, notice the language there in 1225 when he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Does that not indicate that they hadn't yet done so? See that you don't. So, so, so that true believers will not and cannot apostatize. Okay? Though we have these powerful warnings against apostasy even in the book of Hebrews, it's not saying and this can happen to a true believer. Uh, quickly, chapter 6 and verse 9. You've got that powerful warning against apostasy in, uh, well, really verses 1 through 8, but especially 4 through 8 of Hebrews chapter 6. But then you remember what the writer says immediately following that powerful, sobering warning. But beloved... Hebrews 6, 9, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Though I'm using such strong language against apostasy, I want you to know that those who are truly saved, they will not apostatize. And he goes on to speak of, here's our confidence in your state. But I'm still giving you such a strong warning. The same thing, that uh, warning in Hebrews 10, 26 and following. And yet he closes in saying, verse 39, but we are not those. We are not those who draw back, but are those who believe to the saving of the soul. So even when he gives these powerful warnings against apostasy, he's not doing so in a sense of saying, and you guys, you're believers, but now you're lost. No, that's not true. But I do think we can say this. The writer recognizes what have them recognize, what have us recognize, that here's the tendency, here's the character of any turning away from God. Even the first step. Okay? Not the guy who finally, yeah, he, but even the first step. Turning away. It, it, it's apostasy. It begins with that. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
See what he speaks, this glorious gospel. See what you have professed, the writers here saying to them. Uh, see that so much light has been given to you, Christ and him crucified. Will you reject that light? If so, uh, you would be rejecting him who speaks. Uh, the one living God, who, mind you, is the God of both Old Covenant and New Covenant. You'll be refusing this God. You think go back to Judaism? You're, oh, you're refusing to hear him, this same God who speaks. See that you do not refuse him. Not in any way, not for any reason, not to any degree. In fact, the language there when he says see, it's elsewhere translated beware. Like when he says beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God back in 3.12. Well, it's the same word here translated see. Beware of this. Lest there be this going on here. A close watching. Don't allow the first step on that road that would be towards apostasy. Yes, we know. True believers. Uh, true, those truly saved, they will not apostate. But wait a minute. Don't you put even one little toe on that path. And to aid this careful watching... The writer emphasizes the consequence of turning away. And that's what we have here as our third head. Notice 1225 again of the book of Hebrews. 1225. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Those who refused him who spoke on earth at Mount Sinai, they did not escape. The writer has already said back in chapter 3 how their corpses fell in the wilderness. You've got it in Deuteronomy, like in chapter 2, how uh, by the hand of the Lord, uh, he came against them uh, to destroy them. And they were consumed. They did not escape. They refused him who spoke after all that they had heard and seen at Mount Sinai. After all they had seen uh, in Egypt. After even passing through that Red Sea. Right? Hebrews makes reference to that earlier. And yet such unbelief. They refused to believe God's word. There was such rebellion. There was a turning away from him. In fact, when you read in Numbers and Deuteronomy... Right? You're familiar with that? All their rebellion and their uh, provoking God. Uh, do you not think them blameworthy? Right? When you see what, what is wrong with you people? I mean, they got the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Right? All day long, there's this huge pillar of cloud right there. Well, that should be obvious enough. At nighttime, it's in a pillar of fire. I mean, everywhere you are in this camp of however many people there were, probably somewhere over a million, you got this pillar of fire. You can see it. And would you not, would you not think, you know, this is not natural. Uh, it's bearing witness to the true and living God there among them. And yet for them to refuse him who spoke. No escape. No escape. But if that was so in their case, if justice brought such wrath on them for their refusing of him, the writer saying, what about now? What about now? How much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven? 
kind of an argument from the lesser to the greater here. If then there was such justice and such wrath, well, how will any escape after all the light that we've been given? All the light and truth of the gospel. Certainly it will be a, a greater, a more heinous, a more uh, damning refusing than those in the past as more light is rejected and this God still speaks in the gospel. It's the same argument that is used in Hebrews 2. We read it earlier, but I would ask you to come back there, please. Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? You see this again in chapter 10. Please come there. Hebrews chapter 10 in the connection with that uh, warning against apostasy there. We'll just notice verses 28 and 29. Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. If God has shown his just wrath in history against the rejection of less light, what now of those who reject the greater light? There is a way of escape. There is this so great salvation. But if you're rejecting that, you're refusing that, then there is no other. The only alternative is to be damned forever. Even with a more severe, a stricter, a, a, a greater uh, judgment on sin for refusing him. That's the argument of Hebrews 12. And that's just the basic principle that our Lord taught, like in uh, Luke chapter 12, about to whom much is given, much will be required. Or to put it another way, Higher privileges bring greater responsibility. Or, yet another way, greater light brings greater accountability. Remember how Jesus denounced and even condemned uh, Capernaum and, and uh, certain cities where all the miracles had taken place. They had so much light. How will you escape uh, the condemnation of hell? You think you're going to be lifted? No, you'll be brought down. Right? Because they had greater light. Sodom and Gomorrah, if you, these things had been done there, they would have exist, exist still today. You have far greater light than they had. You see what happened to them? Greater light, greater accountability, greater condemnation. Well, that's what the writer is here saying in chapter 12, just like he said back in chapter 2, like he said in chapter 10. And can I say, this applies to all unsaved, all sinners, even here and now. How will you escape? If multitudes have perished in their sin and are damned forever, how will you not be damned. Especially since you know of Jesus Christ and his gospel. You know more about this great salvation that he secured and has freely held forth in the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. You'll, how will you escape if you neglect that? But see, there is a way of escape. It's in Jesus Christ. 
go to him, be saved by him, repent and believe the good news. But now remember, these words, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 12, they were not penned first and foremost to those who were openly rebellious, but to the religious, even people who knew the gospel of Christ and had professed faith in him. Here they are, as I've said, they were waffling. They're tempted to go back. Maybe persecution. Maybe it was just discouragement. I thought if I became a Christian, everything was going to go uh, wonderful. But now, look what's happening. And I just, it's hard times. It's these people, for them, that he pins these words in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 12. How will you escape? If they didn't escape in that old covenant era, what about now? How will you? If you refuse him who speaks. Now, did the writer pin this in order to frighten them? Is that what he's out to do? Just to scare the daylights out of them? What can I say there's a sense in which, yes, it was to frighten them. In a sense, it was. They're playing with fire here. For any who would depart from the living God, see the alternative here. It's damnation without remedy. So there's a sense in which, yeah, For any reason that you would depart and cast off the faith. Maybe it's believing the lies of the atheist. Maybe it's some scandalous sin. A man toying with uh, temptation to leave his wife or a wife to leave her husband. Or, or some scandalous, uh, other form of scandalous sin. Or, or like those of whom we read in, in the book of Jude in the fourth verse about how they were using the gospel of God's grace as a license for their sin. Well, I'm saved by grace. It's okay. I'll do whatever I want to. They're basically rejecting Refusing him who speaks, holding out the gospel. If any would depart from the living God in any way, for any reason, be afraid. Be very afraid. See the end in view here. No escape. No escape. Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. He calls them brethren, but he's still saying, beware. Lest there be in any of you. And again, see that there is escape. There is so great salvation. Keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But the writer's aim was not to frighten with these words. The writer's aim was not to rob true believers of assurance. Remember the aim of Hebrews is their perseverance. To keep them in the way. Even as you said in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Run with endurance the race that is set before. Run with perseverance. Keep running in the way. Keep looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. That's his aim, to shore up those waffling believers and make them yet more careful, more diligent, more watchful. Keep looking to Jesus. And these several strong warnings, like here in 12, or Hebrews 6, or Hebrews 10, uh, that we find here in this letter, is designed to impress upon them the seriousness of this matter. If I might use an illustration that I know I've used in the past, bear with me. You're driving down the highway. It's a construction, right? A work zone in the highway. And you got this sign, different states have different signs. Some, it's a case of uh, a maximum penalty for speeding, $500. Right? So you see this sign. You're coming into this work zone. You see this sign, $500. What's that sign there for? 
to put you in a panic? $500? I don't have $500. How am I going to pay $500? Where am I going to get $500 to pay off that fine? Is that the right response to that sign? If that's your response, can we talk afterwards? Right? No, the right response, slow down. Take this warning seriously and keep going forward. So when we see Hebrews 6, when we see Hebrews 10, when we see Hebrews 12, 25, it's not to scare the daylights out of the Lord's people. It's to impress This is serious. This is very serious. Now slow down and keep moving forward or maybe not slow down, run with race, uh, run with uh, patience the race that is set before us. But take heed. This is serious. Don't be lax. That's what was going on there. Remember how they become dull in their understanding? No, don't allow that. Well, there's the lesson for us. That though, yes, those who are truly saved, well, uh, there's better things accompanying salvation. Uh, we are not those who draw back, but those who believe to the saving. And so, yet that doesn't give us reason to presume. That doesn't give us reason for laxity. That doesn't give us reason to be dull in our hearing. That doesn't give us reason to be sloppy instead of pursuing holiness. Though God is the God of all grace. And what glorious gospel is ours in Christ. What salvation indeed. That does not mean sin is not serious. And it doesn't mean that God is not holy. And therefore the lesson when we see these warnings is watch and pray. This is serious. Beware lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. But no. Keep pursuing holiness. Keep looking unto Jesus. As John Brown, the commentator, put it, beware of inattention, beware of unbelief, beware of disobedience in reference to Christian revelation, what God has revealed. But there's something more here, I think, and it's this. How should, how does this wording in 1225 register on a Christian's mind? See to it that you do not refuse him. Put that way, what about you, Christian? What about those Christians? The writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, if you go back to Judaism, reckon you're refusing him. Him, whom your heart loves. Him. How do you respond to that? Are you ready to leave him? Him? The one who sent his only begotten son to redeem you? That you should be adopted by him and share that status with Christ to be loved as Christ is loved forever and ever? You're going to refuse him? How should that have registered with them? How does that register with you? See, put in those terms. I think it's very deliberate. He didn't say, see to it, you do not refuse what was spoken. No, it's, it's him. He keeps underscoring that. It's him. You're turning away from him. Will you do that? Would you do that? Is that really what you want to do, to turn from him? Well, the answer to the Christian's heart is no. No, put like that, that sin, that uh, temptation, whatever. No, it's him I want, right? And I think that's the whole rationale of the writer here. Beware, don't turn. See that's refusing him. It's rejecting him. Would you do that, Christian? The heart of the Christian says no. No, I would do the opposite. Brethren, isn't that reason then for us to watch and pray, to beware, to not refuse the word? 
to not refuse his gospel, to not let our uh, grip on it slip in the least, it's him. It's him. Rather, it's reason to do the exact opposite, to gladly embrace his word and gladly embrace him. That word speaks to you as God speaking to you as his child. And certainly that glorious gospel of Christ and so great salvation. See what is ours in Christ. Don't refuse him, but gladly, extremely embrace him. And be ever aware, and be ever aware that we have so great salvation, such a gracious God, such a glorious Savior. Loving him who first loved us. Brother, that's the Christian life. See what any withdrawing, what any pulling back, what any distraction. See it's, it's nature. Certainly what any rejection of his words. See what it is. It's refusing him. Don't do that. You don't want to do that. Well, recognize it. Might God help us then to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your great grace to sinners. And Lord, even in these sober warnings, it's not to frighten, it's to impress upon us seriousness, but it's to keep us running in the way. Well, Father, grant we would embrace them more, that we would embrace you. We love you because you first loved us. Well, help us then to uh, live the Christian life with endurance by the aid of your Holy Spirit. And help us to keep looking unto Jesus. We pray for any who are strangers to your grace here. Lord, that this would be the day they would understand. Oh, what glorious good news is held out to them. What grace to even hear that good news. They might see Christ crucified, Christ alive, Christ saving sinners. Christ that glorious Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.